Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of your holy Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of the people of Israel, the house of Israel, all of us know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are Yodanai, who teaches Torah to his people Israel. Amen. Amen. I have a, a lot to share today. We are going to be in Megillah Ruth eventually. <laughs> but being that this is Shabbat Haggadol, it is customary to read a little bit of the Haggadah and to uh, talk about it. I'll tell you why in a second. But before we even do that, I just want to comment about, we just read about the Mashiach healing the Mitzorah. Mitzorah, as you know, is someone who is afflicted with Zarat. Zarat is not leprosy, as many of the English commentaries make, because leprosy, leprosy, leprosy that's another disease. <laughs> <coughs> leprosy is a physical disease. Zarat is a spiritual disease. But I just want to point out the reason he says, because people often wonder, it says he warned him quick and took him outside to make sure that he did not tell anybody why. He said here, he warned him, took him outside, and he said, see to it that you not tell anything to anyone. He said, don't tell anything to anyone. That's what he actually said. He didn't necessarily say, don't tell him what I, ha what I did. He just said, don't tell anything to anyone. Why? Because the reason that you get Zarat is because of Lashon Hara, you're running your mouth. That's the problem. You talk too much. As I said in the Aliyah, the reason you have two birds is because they tweet. The birds tweet, 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 tweet. So you bring two birds. It's not it's, it's what they just say. You bring two birds because the birds are known for talking all the time. So the problem is you had a Twitter account and you're talking too much on the Twitter account. <laughs> and you create the Shanhar. So he, he says, what he's actually telling him is, is to stop. You're doing this. I need you to do this. Stop talking so much. This is what got you in trouble the first time. Of course, obviously, the guy can't help himself. He goes around telling everything what Mashiach did. So I just want to point out, this is why he said, don't be doing so much talking. Today, historically, in the first exodus, was the 10th of Nisan. Shabbat Kagadol was the 10th of Nisan. Very um, significant, very important uh, time. The sages say about the 10th of Nisan that the reason that this is such an important day, important time, is because on the 10th of Nisan is when the redemption began. We very much think that the redemption began uh, maybe the, the moment that we left Mitzrayim. But the reality is, the sages say that the minute, and I want you to catch, I want you to see the picture here. The 10th of Nisan is when we selected the lamb for our households. It was a very personal offering. Very, lots, lots to say about that, but, but it was very personal. You, you had to go out and select your own lamb for your own house. And then you had to tie it up at your house, which means that you had to feed it, you had to take care of it, you had to get to know it, you had to watch it, you had to examine it for four whole days. And then you took it to, to slaughter in antiquity to the temple. And the, the lamb was the only offering that you, or the, the person who took it, the head of the house presumably, that the head of the house slaughtered, not the priest. So it's so personal. You pick it out, you watch it, you feed it, you take care of it, and then you slaughter it. So the next time somebody says that the Jews killed Mashiach, you say, no, actually I did. I chose him myself, and I examined him myself, and I slew him myself so that he could be my redeemer. You've got to make it personal. It's all very personal. This also teaches us a lesson that the, the redemption happened in two phases. First, there was a lamb that came that died, and then later the redemption. Two phases. Of course, the Mashiach came into Yerushalayim riding on a donkey. That was kind of prophetic. He did that on the 10th of Nisan. And we read in the Gospels what happens after he comes into Jerusalem. He spends four days in the temple being examined by all the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, all the scholars. And what does it say? They could find no fault in him. Why? Because the lamb and everything that was given to us about the lamb 
is based upon the Akidah of the Son, the Son of Promise, the Seed of Promise, the Mashiach. It's not that the Mashiach has in his offering has to match everything with the lamb. No, the lamb matches him, not the other way around. Because every offering that was offered was based upon that ultimate offering. Which is why you could still have offerings after he was resurrected because they're all based on him anyway. The, the reason we know that is because the sages say that all the offerings prior to that were based upon Isaac and his offering. Isaac was a, a, a model of Yeshua being offered. But of course... Isaac wasn't offered even then, but the ram was offered. And the ram was Mashiach. It was the ram. It was a supernatural ram. It was a ram. It was created 2,000 years, as they just say, before creation, which means it's supernatural, which means that there were two Akidahs. There was the Akidah of Isaac and the Akidah of Yeshua. But in fact, there was only one Akidah because Yeshua was killed both times. Because before the foundation of the earth, the lamb was slain, meaning that the lamb was chosen, created prior to that event, even before, prior to the, there was such thing as time. By the way, how do we know the Mashiach is divine? Because the Mitzorah says, if he's willing, you can make me whole. And it says he touched him. He didn't have to touch him. All the other times, he speaks a word and the man is healed. Every other time, he says to the demon, come out, and he just comes out. Not, not a big rigmarole. What's your name? How many is with you? Oh, yeah, I've got to do all this stuff. <laughs> big show, all the cameras running. No, he just says, come out. Yeah. That does, that, that's a really short prophetic conference. <laughs> it's hard to sell tickets to that one. Ready? One, two, three, come out. All right, let's go eat. He says to the man who's lame, take up your mat and go home. Why does he touch the Mazzora? Doesn't have to. He does it to make a statement. I'm touching you. I'm touching you, touching you, touching you, touching you, touching you. Why? Because if I touch you, I should become defiled, right? If I were human, that would be true. But since I'm the word of God, you can't defile the word of God. So therefore, I make you clean. You don't make me contaminated. If he was human, if he was only human, that would not be possible. It would have had to have said, well, now he's defiled. Now he has to go and wait and take a mikvah, et cetera, to bring an offering. He sends him to the priest. He doesn't, he said, let's go to the priest together because I need to bring an offering too now. <laughs> Missed that. <laughs> he says, you go to the priest. I don't need to go because I'm the spring of living water and you can't defile a spring, which is why you can mikvah in a spring. Because you can't defile the spring. <laughs> Listen, I'm going to read a couple things here from this uh, Haggadah written by Rombill. the traditional part that you read on Shabbat Haggadol. Originally, our ancestors were idol worshipers. Remember, that's, that's true. In Egypt, we were all idol worshipers. There's nothing to be proud about. Someone says, I, I come from a very distinctive Jewish family. I grew up in a Jewish home. As you all know, it's my favorite saying of all time. I grew up in a Jewish home, and my grandfather was a Rebbe, and his grandfather was a Rebbe, and his daddy was a Rebbe, and I got Rebbe's going all the way back. And then you, they'd look at you like, you don't even know anything. You're just a convert. You just, what do you know? Your, your family were going. And so he's all proud, maybe, about his Rebbe family, but they all, we all go back, including the convert. We all go back to Mitzrayim. Everybody's an idolater. Everybody started out as an idolater. Somebody might say, well, okay, but I've, I've been around longer, fine. But all of our souls were present at Mount Sinai. All of our souls were created in Gan Eden. So there's nobody who's really older than anybody. Think about that. We're all the same age here today. Some of us have been in our earth suits longer some of those suits need to be changed out. 
But our souls are all the same age. Right? Just think about that. Say law on that for a moment. Anyway, originally our ancestors were idol worshippers. But now Hashem has brought us near to his service, as it is written. Yehoshua said to all the people, So says Adonai, God of Israel, your fathers always lived beyond the Euphrates River, Tarak, the father of Avraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Avraham from beyond the river, and I led him through all the land of Canaan. I multiplied his offspring and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave Mount Seir to inherit. But Yaakov and his descendants, his children, went down to Mitzrayim. We were slaves in Egypt, but Hashem set us free by the power of his right hand. If the Holy One, blessed be he, had not taken our ancestors out of Egypt, then we, our children, and our children's children would have still been enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. But blessed, the Holy One, blessed be he, keeps his promises. For he, the Holy One, blessed be he, calculated the end of bondage in order to fulfill his word to Abraham Avinu at the covenant between the parts, as it is written. He said to Abraham, Know that your offspring will be aliens in a land not their own. They will serve them, and they will oppress them 400 years. But upon that nation I will execute judgment, and afterward they shall leave with great possessions. I want to share an insight from uh, the Gutnik Haggadah to this phrase, we, were, we would still be enslaved in Egypt. They write here, the Haggadah seems to be stating an obvious statement. If God had not set us free, we'd still be enslaved. Obviously. Right? So there has to be something different or something deeper that the Haggadah is trying to teach us rather than just the obvious. So it says one of the most sophisticated concepts to be found in halakhic discussions, halakha is Jewish law, is that of peula nimshekis. That is a legally ongoing event. This is where an event which has ceased from the onlooker's perspective is nevertheless, from a legal perspective, considered to be a, a, an, an event that is repeating itself every moment. This is pretty deep, so stay with me. This is not, today is not a God is good drosh. They're never that, but today for sure. It says, while there are many examples of this phenomenon, the most pertinent to our case relates to the principle of a hegdish consecrating property for use in the temple. Jewish law permits a pledge of consecration to later be annulled, which explains, uh, which, which indicates rather, that the initial act of consecration must have been a legally ongoing event. In other words, if you can dedicate land and you have the possibility to annul or nullify your vow, then you must be making a vow to give that land every moment, even though you gave it a long time ago. So it says here, every moment it is consecrated anew. Every moment it is consecrated anew. Let me explain this because it's very important, talking about the Exodus. There's a reason why we remember the Exodus every day and several times a day. Because you give a piece of property, I dedicate this land to be used in the temple. You have the right and the ability to revoke that land. But of course, you're not going to. But you do have the ability to. So therefore, by you saying, I consecrate this land, and you have not revoked it, means that every moment of every day, that vow is being repeated. Even though you made it a long time ago. So 20 years later, that land is still being dedicated, and your vow is being heard in the heavenly realms. I dedicate it, I dedicate it, I dedicate it, I dedicate it. Because you have the, the possibility of revoking it. Therefore, to keep it free, you have to keep speaking. This is how the legal mind of Judaism works with respect to this topic. So it says, it's consecrated every moment anew for the fact that the vow of consecration could be annulled at any moment shows that it is constantly being renewed by its initial declaration. In other words, the law perceives it as if the person's verbal declaration of consecration is being uttered every second, thereby maintaining the object's consecrated status. Annulling the vow is thus merely a case of decreeing that the ongoing speech should now cease. So if you say, I no longer dedicate it, then you cause that ongoing speech to stop. 
So it says, in the current passage, the Haggadah teaches us that the Exodus 2 is a legally ongoing event. If the whole and blessed be ye had not taken our ancestors out of Egypt, that is, and on, in an ongoing fashion that continues to this very day, then we would still be enslaved in Egypt. Now, why is this necessary? It points out because elevating something that's mundane into a status of holiness is by definition and nature an extraordinary event which requires extraordinary legal status. So it says, likewise, the notion that we've been redeemed from Egypt never to return goes against the grain of the natural course of history. Of, of history. For who is it, or who is to say, rather, that a similar scenario might not repeat itself again? It thus requires an ongoing exodus. So ultimately, the exodus was not merely a past event which had a profound effect on the future, but it's a phenomenon that shapes history on a day-to-day -day basis. This is why the sages say that you have to see yourself as having been personally set free from Mitzrayim. That is not, my friends, an exercise in cycle, 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 uh, whatever. It's not just psyching yourself up, like I'm, I'm going I'm to see myself as if I was there, as if you weren't, because the fact is you were. In fact, is you are now. The reality is, is because God set us free way back when, that is being repeated every second of every day, which means you and I, my friends, are being set free from Egypt right now, and, and again now, now, and now, and now right now, and now right this moment. Every single day, he's keeping us out of Egypt by his spoken word of consecration because he chose you. We read in the gospel story, the gospel account, that Yeshua remains silent, right? He remains silent before his accusers. There's a reason why he remained silent. It wasn't just to fulfill a prophecy. There's a spiritual reason. It says in the, uh, the uh, Haggadah, the Eshes Chayil Haggadah, the one I got from my wife. <laughs> it says... <laughs> The verse says, Vayomer lak benamayik hai, Vayomer lak benamayik hai. And I said to you, through your blood you shall live. And I said to you, through your blood you shall live. It says there, generally the word benamayik means through your blood, but the Hosen of Lublin has a second meaning to that word, because that same word that means in your blood could mean through your silence. When someone remains silent when he doesn't answer despite being insulted, when he gives up his rights to something in order to keep peace, he merits chai, he merits life. Rav Menachem Mendel of Kotz, the Kotzer Rebbe, said, silence is the most beautiful sound. It says, sometimes a person gives in through silence. Occasionally one does so through speech. Two sisters who became our matriarchs, were rewarded when each other gave up what was rightly hers for the other. The Midrash in Eka Peskida 24 describes Eka's lamentations, describes how the Avos, that is, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and Moshe, all came before the Holy One, blessed be he, right before the destruction of the Beis Amigdash, begging him to save the Jewish people in the merit of their deeds. And as much as the Jewish people had done, as as many sacrifices that they had offered, and as great as their accomplishments were, their accomplishments were, it was not enough to attain mercy for the Jewish people. Then Raquel, Iman Imenu, our mother, came before Hashem and reminded him, so to speak, of how she had yielded her rightful husband to her sister Leah. Hashem, I gave my sister Leah the secret signs that Leah would not be shamed. I sacrificed everything. I was not jealous. I gave up my rights to avoid causing Leah pain. Certainly you, Adonai, should not be jealous when the Jewish people serve idols of sticks and stones. Immediately the mercy of Hashem arose and he said, 
Restrain not your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is reward for your accomplishment, the word about an eye. There is hope for your future, the word about an eye, and your children will return to their border. From Jeremiah 31, 15 through 16, that's the right before the new covenant. By telling Leah the signs and by remaining silent and allowing her sister to marry Yaakov, Raquel merited the salvation of hers and Leah's children. And of course, Raquel is known to be the mother, so to speak, of Bethlehem. So Raquel is the one, the mother, another mother, so to speak, of Mashiach. So the reason that Mashiach was silent was not just because he was being humbled. It wasn't just to fulfill a a prophecy. But he knew that there was redemption in his silence. When he remained silent in the face of abuse and insult and false accusation and kept his mouth shut, he knew that by doing that, by laying down what was rightfully his, he was able to give to us what was not rightfully ours. And so, we learn we need to defend ourselves when people talk about us. We need to speak that Lashon Hara. We need to, no. Because through our silence, very often we elevate ourselves and others, just like Rachel elevated herself. To the Megillah roof. Doing pretty good, Baruch Hashem, on time, I mean. Right, no, no reason to get mad at the goodbye yet. Don't say bye-bye to the goodbye-bye. Uh-huh. Ah. The blessing before the Megillah reading. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kitshana B'Mitzatav Etzivano, Al Mikra Megillah. Blessed are you, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us regarding the reading of the Megillah. Ruth chapter 2, we're going to pick up reading in verses 13. I don't know why I always do this. Let's get a running start, shall we? Verse 10, because I want to talk about 10. We're going to read from 10 to 21, the book of Ruth. We're going through the Megillah of Ruth. We're going to have a couple of weeks break because of the Pesach holiday and talk about uh, some other things, but we'll pick up Ruth on the other side of redemption. <laughs> so it's, that's right. That's right. It says, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing down to the ground. She's, this is in front of Boaz. And said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take special note of me, though I'm a foreigner? Boaz replied and said to her, I've been fully informed of all that you've done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and the land of your birth and went to a people you had never known before. May Adonai reward your actions and may your payment be full from Adonai, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, because you have comforted me and because you have spoken to the heart of your maidservant, though I am not even as worthy as one of your maidservants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here and partake of the bread and dip your morsel in the vinegar. So she sat beside the harvesters. She handed her parched grain. He handed her parched grain, and she ate and was satisfied and had even some left over. So in other words, he invited her to sit with the harvesters and not with the poor people's table, but to sit at his table. Yeah. So it says in verse 15, Then she got up to glean, and Boaz ordered his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not embarrass her, and even deliberately pull out some for her from the heaps and leave them for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and she, she beat out what she had gleaned, and it came to about an ephah of barley. She carried it and came into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned and took out and gave her what she had left over, and all, after eating, all her field. Where did you glean today? Her mother-in-law asked her. Where did you work? 
May the one that took such generous notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law, whom she had worked by, and said that the name of the man by whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of Adonai, for not failing in his kindness to the living or to the dead. The man is a close relative to us, Naomi said to her. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, What more he even said to me, Stay close to my workers until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, It is fine, my daughter, that you go out with these young men so that you will not be annoyed in another field. So she stayed close to Boaz, young women, to glean until the end of the barley harvest and of the wheat harvest. Then she stayed at home with her mother-in-law. So she has great favor with Boaz, and I want to touch on that. That um, First of all, we have a picture here of Naomi, or not Naomi, rather, but Ruth, who is gleaning in the field. It says in Ma'am Loez's commentary to uh, chapter 2 in verse uh, 6, it says, other commentaries explain that the overseers were praising Ruth to Boaz. Some commentators saw that maybe the overseers were trying to dissuade Boaz from paying attention to Ruth because after all, she's from Moab and that's the most that, that was the most detestable city, or, or nation rather, uh, that the Jews could have thought of. And so they were like, don't, she's a Moabitess. But others say they were praising her, looking at her, she's doing a good job. They said this woman was young enough, he, intimidate, he intimated, to bear him children and replace his sons that had died. So he, they were suggesting maybe this might be a good wife, a good re- wife for Boaz says, moreover, being a Moabite woman and not a man, she was, in fact, permitted to marry a Jew, although most didn't know that at the time. Her conversion was purely for the sake of heaven, considering that she had abandoned her life as a princess and returned to the destitute uh, Naomi. It even says in another instance here that that Ruth actually went back to Moab for a time and tried to make converts of some more of the Moabites. But I was reading this and thinking to myself, because we have Ruth here who goes back and does some, some um, conversion work herself. And I was thinking, since Ruth is a spiritual type and, and picture of what it means to be a true follower of Hashem. Will the Mashiach come and find us? Because Boaz represents the Mashiach in this story. He's the kinsman redeemer. Will the Mashiach find us faithfully gleaning sheaves in the field? And what made, and we, I, we didn't have time to read it in the last couple of weeks, but what drew the attention of Boaz, one of the things that drew his attention to Ruth was that she was gleaning in the field as a proper Jewish woman. She was modest in her behavior. She wasn't just being lazy, for instance, just bending over, but she was actually squatting down so that her dress would not be raised and for other obvious reasons. The point being is that she was gleaning in the field, gathering in the sheaves as a Jewess, not as a Moabitess. Will the Redeemer come and find us gleaning in the field as a Jew, not as somebody acting like one of the nations? He wants us to pick up those sheaves, those those sheaves that are left behind, the ones that don't don't follow the crowd, the ones that that are not going to stay in the bundle, as it were, with everybody else. Ruth even herself went out and tried her best to win over. It says here, some early commentators perceived a difficulty, for it says the verse says she returned to the fields, or returned rather from the fields of Moab. What do you mean she returned from the fields of Moab? Of course she did. So what, why is that extra phrase in there? It says, yet she had never been to Bethlehem. So if it says she returned from the fields of Moab, and yet She'd already come back, but 
She had never been to Bethlehem in the first place, so how can she be returning? And the answer is that she was returning because once she came to Bethlehem and saw the beauty of this life, she went back to her people in Moab and tried to bring them under the wings of the Shekinah as well. And when Boaz found her, she had recently returned to Bethlehem from her missionary journey. Not to mis- She didn't go to Jerusalem to missionize. She didn't go to Haifa to missionize. She didn't go to Ashdod to missionize. She went to the nations to missionize. To bring in... Con- no, you- no, y'all are asleep on me this morning. I'm going to go till three. She wasn't going out trying to make converts of Jews. She went back to Moab to make converts of the Moabites and bring them under the wings of Judaism. See, the spiritual picture is painted for us all the time. We just miss it because we've been trained. We've been brainwashed for thousands of years that we're supposed to go convert Jews. And Yeshua, he didn't say say that. He said, go to the nations teaching them the commandments. He's going to come back and say, y'all been selling to the wrong customers. You're selling ice to Eskimos. Come on, people. What's going on here? You've got to think about what's going on. She's a Moabite girl. Some of, as I said earlier, some of the... um, some of the people working in his, his place didn't like her. It says, and yet you say her conduct is praiseworthy and modest is one of the comments from the art school commentary in the Tanakh series. Her mother-in-law instructed her well. In other words, she's this way because only because her mother-in-law told her what to do, how to behave. Her good manners are not her own, the overseer responded. Her seemingly modest behavior was drilled into her by her mother-in-law. In other words, it was drilled into her. It's not internal, it's all external. So the overseer, it says here, was trying to dissuade Boaz from her. You know, just like they said that Miriam can't be the mother of Mashiach. Remember that Ruth becomes the mother of Mashiach. And they were, they were saying to her, she's not worthy of that honor. She's not worthy of that position. It says in Ma'am Loez to verse 11. Let's turn there and there right quick. Actually, before we get to verse 11, I want to go back to verse 10 for a second. Another source. Ruth was asking Boaz a very important question. Why me? You could say, well, she's a pretty girl, and his wife has passed away, so he's a widower. So he's thinking. But actually, Boaz wasn't thinking that at all. Boaz is 80. Ruth is 40. There's no way that Boaz thinks that he even has a shot, even if he wanted a shot. I don't have a shot. Okay? I'm not even in the game. All right? That's not, that's not his motive. His motive is not, hey, no. In fact, the commentators point out that Boaz was thinking that his life, it was that. He's in, the, he's in God's waiting room at this point. He's had a wife, he's had a full life, he's been a prince of Judah, he's had sons, maybe daughters. Now he's just going to oversee and just bless God. Little does he know he's got one last mitzvah, and that's to be the father of Mashiach. It's kind of heavy, isn't it? So Ruth says here, why? Why, though I'm a foreigner? What did you see in me that you, you took special notice and inquiry about me, though I'm a, I'm a nakria, that is an ordinary stranger? This is on page 94, by the way, of the Art School Tanakh series, in case you have it and want to read along. It says, many other women who glean here are also strangers, but no one pays any special attention to them. According to Preheim, Ruth was not aware that Boaz was a relative. Her question was prompted by the fact that she thought it was unusual for a stranger to shower somebody else with attention. The Targum says, and it translates it, How is it that I found favor in your eyes? I'm, a, I'm a, of a foreign nation, a daughter of Moab, a nation not fit to enter the Kahal Hashem, the assembly of Adonai. Don't you, you see the, the humility of Ruth? She didn't come with any alter. She came, as I said a few weeks ago, she came expecting to give up everything 
and to gain nothing except a relationship with God. I want to say that again. She came into this walk expecting to give up everything. Because remember, Ruth was a princess. She wasn't just a Moabitess. She was the daughter of the Moabite king. She literally left the palace, took off the ring, took off the royal garb, left the big buffet, and went to glean barley in a field. And she did it so that she could have a relationship with the one true God. She gave up everything. And that's why I say, my friends, and I say it sometimes uh, tongue-in-cheek, but that's why I say we've got to really search our hearts when we say that we can't give up pork chops or we can't give up Saturdays or we can't give up Christmas and Easter or we can't give up dressing like we're always mowing the lawn or going to the beach. We can't give those things up. Are you kidding me? You've never given up a palace. You've never given up a castle. You've never taken the literal crown, not the one that you think you wear, but the little one, the literal one off your head and put it down and said, no, thank you. You've never told anybody, I am no longer your queen. I'm now just a Jewess. You see? Going in the Pesach, I think this is a very important message because we know that Mashiach left everything. He descended to elevate us. And now we're concerned about silly things. Can I, miss the, uh, can I miss the soccer game on Friday night? Can't give that up. Can't give up, can't give up high school football. Oh, Rabbi, getting uncomfortable now. <laughs> Go ahead and talk about those odd dollars, but don't talk about football. <laughs> Anything wrong with sports? No. Nothing's wrong with Dr. Pepper either as long as you ain't addicted to it. <laughs> We're going to have to counsel Zakin after this. <laughs> Get some help. Now this is Boaz's, this is Boaz's motivation. Y'all still with me? Yeah. All right. Clear. Boaz responds that he has heard of her extraordinary and magnanimous deeds in the exemplary way she treated her mother-in-law and her leaving home and family to embrace Judaism. He says, All that you have done for your mother-in-law, Boaz told Ruth that his favorable attitude towards her was a result of two things. First, despite the fact that a woman usually has ill feelings towards her mother-in-law. There's that. Ruth treated Naomi in an exemplary manner, especially after Naomi became widowed and forlorn, thus demonstrating a rare nobility of character, and secondly, for having left her parents and homeland in order to convert. I just can't get over the fact, I just want to reiterate, that she, she had a woman that she was following back to the Holy Land, who had been a princess and now was so poor she didn't even have shoes. And Ruth left her mother and father, left her kingdom, took off her shoes, and followed Ruth, I mean Naomi. It says here, after the death of your husband, he said to her, and certainly during his lifetime, and it says, how you left your father and mother in the land of your birth. Your conversion, he said, is remarkable because in the face of coercion to remain... Coercion. Anybody been coerced? Anybody been coerced by their friends or family to remain in the goy world? Some people have been... Hey, some people have been blackmailed. No, it's serious. I'm serious. Some people have been blackmailed. 
Some people have been blackmailed visa custody. Not allowed to take my child to the synagogue. Boy, that's anti-Semitism. I just want to tell you in case you're wondering. It's like, yeah, Zeke Heil kind of anti-Semitism right there. So, look, it, he says, it's remarkable because you freely left your parents in your homeland and the place of your birth, and no, with no material consideration, you came to a strange country. Now, I want to read to you just something from Matthew chapter 19 and verse 29. Matthew 19, 29. Make sure I have the right reference there. Peter Kepha, I love Kepha, of all the Talmudim is my favorite. He is. He's my favorite. And people, people make fun of Kepha all the time. And uh, I know we're not supposed to do this in Shemaim, but Kepha and I are going to go talk to some folks when we get up there. We're going to talk to him. We're going to talk to him. We're going to lay hands on him. It says... Uh, Kepha answered and said to the Mashiach, See, we've left everything to follow you. What will be our portion? And Yeshua said, Amen, I say to you, You who follow me in the renewal of creation, when the Son of Man sits upon his throne of glory, you too will sit upon twelve thrones to judge the twelve tribes of Israel. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm just, I'm, it sounds kind of silly, but I mean it. And, I, and nothing against this company I'm about to mention, because I, I think I want them to prosper and do well and become, and become kosher. <laughs> but I'm just going to ask you, can you, get, can you, could you give up a chicken sandwich for a throne of glory? Now, some of you didn't say yes right away because you're thinking about it. <laughs> it says in verse 29, I'm going to move on because that scared me. <laughs> and any man who has left behind houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields. Wow. wow. Don't raise your hand, but don't even say anything. Just think to yourself. Anybody here have any relatives, don't have anything to do with you anymore because you became a Jew? Don't answer. This is for you. They've left everything for the sake of my name and will receive back a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. However, many among the first will be last and among the last will be first. You know, Pesach, we talk about Pesach and the redemption that Yeshua did for us, that God worked for us. But we have to understand that we too have to be willing to leave everything. You understand that only 20% of the Jews were willing to leave Egypt. There were 3 million Jews, but only 600,000 took God up on his offer and put blood on the doorpost. 2.4 million remained in, in Egypt. Why? Because they weren't willing to give up their culture, their idolatry, their menu, their holidays, everything for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now the good news is there were 2.4 million Egyptians who left all of that and converted and left with those 600,000. God will always, listen to this, God will always keep his hover hall full. Because he said, go out and seek, tell them, tell my subjects that the dinner's ready. And they came and said, we told them they're not coming. He said, okay, then go out to the highways and byways and tell all the sheaves that were left behind that you're welcome to the table now. And 2.4 million showed up along with the 600,000 who answered the call. Because if you won't answer the call, God will find somebody who will take your seat. It says here, which you had not known yesterday or earlier, 
than that. Boaz said to her, you came and you didn't even know before the day before you didn't know what you were getting into and you just came sight. You came and bought sight unseen. Well, that corresponds that no eye has seen, no ear has heard. That we come because you're God. I guarantee you that God has a better house for me in heaven than I have one right now. It says here, and he says, and may your payment be full. Literally, in the Hebrew, that means um, that your payment should reach to its full potential. The Igor Shmuel interprets this verse as follows. Hashem will definitely reward your action in this world and your payment will be full, that is boundless, for Hashem, the God of Israel, in the world to come when you, you will bask directly in his radiance. And all of this will be in reward for having converted with a sincere heart to take shelter under the wings of the Shekinah, he tells her. The eager Shmuel further comments that Ruth's merits might be even greater than that of Abraham. Now, Abraham was a convert too. See, all Jews are converts, ultimately. You say, I wasn't born Jewish. Neither was Abraham. I wasn't born Jewish. You know who else wasn't born Jewish in the Bible? Obadiah, the prophet. So you're in good company. You could have a book in the Bible. <laughs> Obadiah didn't grow up, grow up in a Jewish home, and neither did Abraham. You know who else didn't grow up in a Jewish home? Ruth. Rahab. Yosef's wife in Egypt didn't grow up in a Jewish home either, and she gave birth to Manasseh and Ephraim. And we bless our sons to this very day by her sons. Yeah. I'm just about to throw this pulpit. <laughs> It says here, <laughs> it says the sages say of Abraham's merits that the merit of the patriarchs, which acts as a shield, is exhausted, Shabbos 55a. But of Ruth's merit, Boaz blessed her that it will be full. That is, it will be in eternally undiminished. Abraham left his father's house only in response to God's call, lech lecha, go for yourself. God spoke to Abraham and said, Abraham, Go. Go and become a convert. But Ruth left without any divine initiative. God didn't speak to her. She just took a survey of the field and said, you know, I want this. You know who else didn't grow up in a Jewish home? Batya, the daughter of Pharaoh, who was given the privilege of raising Moses. She grew up in the most pagan home you could possibly imagine. And yet... God granted her the privilege of raising the Torah. Raising the little boy that the Torah for all time would be named after, the law of Moses. I want you to see something this morning. It says here, Ruth left on her own initiative without a divine call and despite the dissuasion of her mother-in-law, in order to come under the wings of the Shekinah. Even her mother-in-law said, no, I'll go back. And she's like, I'm going to ask you one more time. Stop dissuading me. It's going to get ugly right here. <laughs> That's the Texas version. That's what Ruth, Ruth from Abilene said that. But <laughs> I'm going to continue this commentary, this, this verse here. You came under, the, under whose wings you have come now to seek, he told her, or, or seek refuge, he told her. Rabbi uh, Abin said, We gather from Scripture that there are wings to the earth, that is Isaiah 24, 16, wings to the sun from Malachi 3.20, wings to the Hayot, that is the celestial beings from Ezekiel 3.13, and wings to the Kevurim, that, that is the cherubim from 1 Kings 8.7. Wings to the Sarfim, that is the Sepharim from Isaiah 6.2. Come and see how great is the power of Zedekim, that is the righteous, and the power of Zadaka, that is righteousness and charity, and how great the power of Gomle Chesed, those who do kind deeds. For they find shelter neither in the shadow of the morning, 
nor of the sun, or even the hyos, the cherubim, or the seraphim, but they come directly under the wings of God himself. Boaz wished that, sh that she should never have to rely on flesh and blood for sustenance, but on Hashem alone. The Dubno Majid elaborates in the Kol Yaakov on the concept of reward for performing mitzvot and sums up that the highest reward for any mitzvah is the sanctification of the performance of the mitzvah, which is a reward and incentive unto himself. Thus Boaz told Ruth, Have no fear, my daughter. Hashem will repay your actions, but may you reach a level of righteous sufficient, righteousness sufficient to appreciate that the most complete payment from Hashem, the God of Israel, is the very fact that you have been inspired to seek shelter under his wings. One last thing here on this verse. Boaz's blessing, it says, was that in addition to rewarding Ruth for the performance of every mitzvah she would perform, God should also additionally reward her for the crucial decision upon which all future good deeds ultimately hinge. That means that she came under the wings of the Shekinah. In other words, that he's telling Ruth that God is going to pay your reward. Kepha, God is going to give you everything that you've been lost. But you should know that your greatest reward is the fact that you perform the mitzvah of coming under the wings of the Shekinah. God is going to bless you simply for the very fact that you have done this great deed. God loves the convert. He loves people who love him. And Boaz was letting her know, as it says here in the Ma'am Loez, the righteous sit with crowns on their heads and enjoy the radiance of the Shekinah. Abraham was the first convert, and his protective merit extends to all future converts. Did you hear that? His protective merit. This is why... This, the Torah says that you'll be the father of many nations. It literally says in the Hebrew that the nations will be engrafted through you. Why? Because he becomes their protector. But Ruth had no need to rely on his merit, for her action surpassed his. She was shleme. Her own merit was complete and inexhaustible. While Abraham had come to the whole land by God's command, she came under her own initiative, and she came solely and strictly for the love of God. But what do we know? What do we know?